Hi, I'm Bradley Brownell. This is 10 and 2, the show that helps you get a grip on the world of cars. This week, we're going to chat about the hundreds of stolen Volvos still driving around in North Korea. As usual, I'll bring you an interesting story about cars, and you bring me your questions. Listen to the show every other week on KWNK in Reno, jalopnik.com all over the world, or download the show wherever you get your podcasts. Email questions to ask10and2 at gmail.com, all spelled out, A-S-K-T-E-N-A-N-D-T-W-O, or call in with your questions to 775 775- 266-8376. That's 775-266-8376. The last couple of shows have focused on general education as it pertains to cars, but this time we're going to take a step into the deep and weird world of international intrigue. Back in the early 1970s, the North Korean government stole hundreds of millions of dollars worth of Swedish goods, including 1,000 Volvo automobiles. To this day, it is known as the greatest state-sponsored mass carjacking in history. How on earth did they manage to get away with it? First, we need a little backstory on the history of Korea and the country's relationship with Sweden. If you don't know your Asian pre-World War history, Korea was a major battlefield in both the Sino-Japanese War and the Russo-Japanese War, which saw hundreds of thousands dead. Following that period, Korea fell under Japanese occupation for 35 years. During World War II, a faction of Koreans called the Korean Liberation Army fought against the Japanese for control of their homeland with support from China, which culminated in the Second Sino-Japanese War. China joined the Allied forces during World War II and attempted to use this influence to get the Allies to recognize a Korean independent government, Korean independence was recognized in 1943's Cairo Declaration, but the Allies continued to bicker about a post-war Korean government. Over a few months in 1945, Soviet Union and Mongolian forces pushed Japanese control out of several occupied territories, including northern Korea, effectively cleaving the Korean peninsula in twain. Following Japanese surrender on Victory Over Japan Day, the Soviet Union took over control of North Korea, installing Soviet General Terenty Shtaikov as provisional head of the government, and the socialist-sympathetic former Korean Liberation Army guerrilla general Kim Il-sun as chairman. The plan at the time was to support a socialist Korean reunification with American-controlled South Korea. South Korea, meanwhile, elected a vehemently anti-socialist leader in Syngman Rhee. The Soviets withdrew from North Korea in 1948, and most of America's forces were gone from the South by 1949, as both ends of the peninsula declared independence. Despite American influence leaving South Korea with a severely neutered military meant only to, quote, preserve internal order and self-defense, North Korean Ambassador Shtaikov suspected that Rhee's government was planning a takeover of the North. Kim and Shtaikov lobbied for military support from Joseph Stalin in an effort to preemptively strike against the South. This quickly led to the outbreak of the Korean War in 1950. An estimated 3 million people died during the three years of the Korean War. Initially, the North Korean military, with help from the Soviets, overran much of the largely helpless South Korea. Believing that fighting the invasion was essential to the United States' goal of containing communism, 
U.S. President Truman convinced a United Nations force to converge on South Korea to help push Kim's forces back. After the NSC-68 report was declassified in 1975, Truman acknowledged as much, saying communism was acting in Korea just as Hitler, Mussolini, and the Japanese had 10, 15, and 20 years earlier. I felt certain that if South Korea was allowed to fail, communist leaders would be emboldened to override nations closer to our own shores. If the communists were permitted to force their way into the Republic of Korea without opposition from the free world, no small nation would have the courage to resist threat and aggression by stronger communist neighbors. As the UN forces pushed north, overwhelming North Korean and Soviet forces with a several-billion-dollar war effort, effectively reaching as far as the northern border, Chinese forces mobilized and intervened on behalf of the North. An armistice was ultimately reached in 1953 that more or less restored the original boundaries between North and South along the 38th parallel. Even still, for another five years, the North would be occupied by Soviet and Chinese forces, which attempted in 1956 to depose Kim Il-sung by force. Obviously, that particular plot didn't pan out the way the anti-Kim forces had planned, For decades, the Korean peninsula had been involved in bloody wars and oppressive occupation. The Korean War had done irreparable harm to the North Korean people. Literally millions of North Koreans, including many civilians, were killed or injured. Pretty much every building of any substance within North Korea was leveled in the years of strife. After basically every major international military power vacated the Korean peninsula, North Korea was left to more or less fend for itself. Kim Il-sung kicked off an ambitious post-war effort to revitalize the country and its economy. A seven-year plan was initiated in 1961, and the country's production was quickly back to 1940s levels of growth. From 1959 to 1965, North Korea was growing its economy faster than South Korea even. Northern per capita gross national product remained higher than its southern counterpart for several more years until it plateaued in the late 1970s. In the midst of this rapid growth, other socialist nations stepped up to attempt trade relations with the North Koreans. This is where we get to Sweden. After well over a decade of economic resurgence, North Korea was making a remarkable comeback from one of the bloodiest wars in history. Not only was the country making huge manufacturing inroads by producing garments, automobiles based largely on Soviet designs, and consumer goods, but it was quickly becoming apparent that North Korea was sitting on a lot of potential mineral wealth. Socialist groups in Sweden wanted North Korea recognized as a sovereign Marxist state. Equally fervently, capitalists in Sweden wanted to start doing business with North Korea to get their hands on large sums of cash from untapped mining resources. Thus, 47 years ago, the Kim-run North Korean government found an unlikely trade ally in Sweden. What a great idea! Jonathan D. Pollock, a senior fellow at the Brookings Institution, says it wasn't such a strange thought back then. Quote, At the time, North Korea wasn't doing so badly, Pollock explains. After the Korean War, their economy was rebuilt. It became a functioning industrial state, still very aid-dependent, but... It wouldn't have seemed like such a bad bet under the circumstances, end quote. By 1973, the Northerners were desperately in need of some fresh automobile designs. 
You can only drive so many Songri Tokchon Akimkois before you want to try something completely different. The Swedish Exports Credits Guarantee Board was convinced in 1974 to extend Kim Il-sung a line of credit to bring a slew of Sweden-produced goods into the country. Atlas Copco Industrial Goods, Cockham Enamelware, and others jumped at the opportunity to supply various goods to the DPRK. Volvo, in particular, shipped 1,000 of its sedans. In all, Sweden sent over $70 million worth of products to Korea. Sweden was the first Western European nation to establish diplomatic relations with North Korea in 1973, and it was the first to set up an embassy in Pyongyang in 1975. All of this was based on the fact that North Korea had been such an excellent trade partner, ordering so many Swedish-built goods. Left-leaning Swedish government officials were eager to recognize North Korea's sovereignty and pushed the Ministry of Foreign Affairs to send a diplomat there. Unbeknownst to the Swedes in power, however, when the bills for all of these goods delivered to North Korea came due, it was promptly shuffled off into the circular file. That is, the trash can. Despite all of the country's growth in the 60s and 70s, Korea had grand ambitions and the government was spending money as fast as it could find it on building itself into the paradise that it fancied itself to be. Grand industrial projects and architectural marvels were pushed into reality by the Kim government with no regard whatsoever to the cost. Rebuilding the country was paramount and the DPRK had to be the Eden that it told its citizens it was. The regime was deeply impressed by itself, in a way that would make Narcissus jealous. Volvo sent marketing materials to North Korean citizens, which made extremely simple claims such as, quote, inside you sit on leather, end quote. Leather goods? That was the absolute lap of luxury as far as North Koreans were concerned, and increasingly corrupt government officials developed expensive tastes. 1,000 various Volvo sedans, both 144s and 244s, were delivered in 1974, each one green with tan leather interior. They certainly were fetching and much better built than any of the domestically produced automobiles of the time. Eric Cornell, a veteran Swedish diplomat, was among the first to arrive in North Korea. Quote, It was an empty country, snowy, windy, cold. And when we came to Pyongyang, you know, you started from scratch when you came there. You couldn't drop into a cafe or a restaurant because there were none. Sometimes all I could do was go out for short drives in my Volvo. That was the conditions of life. End quote. Cornell describes an incredibly sparse North Korean capital city. Shortly after opening the embassy, trade with the West came to a halt. It didn't take very long for the economic relationship between North Korea and Sweden to sour. The whole venture blew up during the 1975 Swedish-Korean Industrial Trade Fair in Pyongyang. By assembling everyone that was importing goods from Sweden to North Korea, it soon became obvious that none of them were being paid. Even the goods that had been imported for display at the expo were outstanding debts. Sweden had been duped by an extremely broke Kim administration. That was the point where exporters realized that they had been party to failure for a bit over a year. Seemingly, every company in Sweden had been drawn in by the promise of diplomatic and industrial ties with North Korea. Journalist Lam Nordenskold said, 
Quote, Many had been blinded by North Korea's impressive economic growth. People had raced to get there first. Sweden was supposed to be the first country to unlock this new market, end quote. According to Swedish newspaper Expressen, in a 1976 expose, the Kim regime had also skipped out on around $6 million owed to Switzerland's famed Rolex brand, from whom Kim had allegedly ordered 2,000 timepieces engraved with, donated by Kim Il-sung. As it turns out, North Korea had originally planned to pay for its debts to foreign entities by delivering copper and zinc exports. Domestic economists had been a bit too optimistic in calculating international ore market prices, which had dropped catastrophically. Where copper had peaked around $1.30 per pound in April of 1974, by the end of the year it was under 50 cents a pound. As they say, don't count your Volvos until you've actually sold your copper, or something like that. There are some who believe the North Korean government just running out of money is far too simplistic an explanation. Some historians and Kim biographers hold that the Sweden-Korea trade fair was all a ruse, a cover-up for widespread industrial espionage. Getting Swedish goods into the country to show off their specs in order for Korean-based companies to copy them wholesale, well, that's a bold strategy, but perhaps not unprecedented. If this is, in fact, the way it went down, then it wouldn't make much sense for the Korean government to pay for stuff it had planned to knock off anyway, right? To this day, every six months, the Exports Credits Guarantee Board calculates the accrued interest on outstanding debts and makes an attempt, no matter how ill-fated, to collect on those debts. As of last reporting, the current bill on North Korea's international heist is over 3 billion Swedish kronas. If you aren't up on your kronas to U.S. dollars conversion rates, that's nearly 400 million. Thanks to 47 years of compounding interest, North Korea is now Sweden's biggest debtor, taking over the position from Cuba. How pushy is Sweden about getting its money back? Well, they aren't sending heavies to Korea to crack skulls, if that's what you're asking. Stefan Carlson, the board's head of risk advisory, told Newsweek, Quote, we semi-annually advise when payments fall due. However, as is well known, North Korea does not fulfill their part of the agreement, end quote. Hmm, how Swedish. I wouldn't take any bets on Stockholm coming good on its 1974 bet on North Korea. And I wouldn't bet on those mineral assets coming out of the ground anytime soon either. Sweden still operates as a small Western nation tie to North Korea and has been instrumental in negotiating with the country as a neutral territory. Sweden's relationship with North Korea to this day allows for distribution of large amounts of humanitarian aid. Stockholm has long been host and sponsor of talks between the U.S. and North Korean representatives. Swedish Foreign Minister Margot Wallström once said, Quote, our presence in North Korea enables us to engage in dialogue and interactions. We take this role very seriously. End quote. Sweden, for example, played a critical role in the 2017 releases of Canadian pastor Hyun Su Lim and American student Otto Warmbier. 
By virtue of Sweden's ambitious plan to partner with North Korea in the 1970s, and by extension, these unpaid-for cars, Sweden has remained a lifeline between North Korea and the rest of the world for decades. North Korea and South Korea are technically still at war, but as a member of the Neutral Nations Supervisory Commission, Sweden is allowed to oversee the armistice, conduct inspections, and observe military exercises as a way of promoting trust between the two Koreas. Sweden considers itself an honesty broker with the North. Maybe, in the long run, it has been better for the world that Sweden was so taken by North Korea. In spite of the age-old debt owed by the Kim regime, now in its third generation, maybe the value of the failed relationship has paid for itself hundreds of times over, by dint of the diplomatic relationship between the two countries. While North Korea became a totally reclusive nation following Kim Il-sung's death in 1994, and much of the country grew enigmatic as a result, its borders have been gently cracked open in recent years to journalists and tourists alike. This has resulted in contemporary documentation that most, if not all, of the original 1,000 Volvo sedans are still on the road in North Korea today. A few years ago, in fact, the Swedish embassy in Pyongyang posted a photograph to its Instagram account of one of these still unpaid for 244 sedans acting as a taxi in Chongjin, with nearly half a million kilometers on the odometer. While Volvo didn't ever get paid for the cars, they certainly are a testament to the brand's longevity and reliability. I guess they'll just have to write it off as an advertising expense. Once again, Ten and Two is bringing you an interesting story that is ostensibly about cars, but more or less isn't. How about that? And now we're going to get to some of the listener questions. We've got a few here, and hopefully some of them will be interesting and you'll learn a few things. Uh, we got an email from Jeff outside of Austin, Texas, uh, saying that next summer he's looking to buy an E-Class station wagon, a Mercedes-Benz. Uh, it's a long time goal and uh, likes to be driving around in, in these things. So uh, it says there's a lot of buyer guides for the used ones, but the uh, new ones aren't so uh, readily available. Um, uh, do you have any suggestions or advice on how to choose a good E-Class wagon? Um, a newer... Mercedes-Benz, probably your best bet there because German cars tend to have a, let's say, not so robust view of reliability in the long term. Um, Your best bet is probably to go with something that is certified pre-owned. So um, your local dealer... uh, to those of you who don't know how certified pre-owned works, with a lot of manufacturers, they will accept trade-ins or uh, they'll buy back your lease at the end of the uh, lease program. Um, They will inspect those cars or have them inspected by the local dealer for a variety of things to make sure that it's reliable and, and as close to new as it can be. You know, um, usually that comes with mileage stipulations. You know, you can't have a certified pre-owned that's over, say, 30,000 miles or something like that. 
It'll also come with stipulations that anything that was broken be fixed, and it'll usually come with a, a decent warranty or an extended warranty. Um, that is probably the best bet for really any new car. Uh, if you're, if you're looking for a two to three year old used vehicle, uh, certified pre-owned is, is usually a good bet. It's usually worth paying for to get that factory warranty. Um, especially on something German, uh, Mercedes-Benz, BMW, Audi, Porsche, that kind of stuff. Um, definitely go with a certified pre-owned if, if that's your option. Um, you'll save a few bucks over new, quite a few actually, because generally uh, Mercedes-Benz E-classes tend to depreciate fairly quickly. Um, so you'll save a few bucks there, and you'll still get the... Uh, peace of mind, I guess, that when something happens to it, because it's probably inevitable at that point, um, you're, you'll be covered, or you won't have to pay for it out of pocket. Uh, that's not to say that every new car is unreliable and will run into issues. Um, I actually drive a, a new German car myself. We're in our third year of ownership, and it's been flawless. So... Uh, yeah, hopefully that answers the question. I, I'm, I'm not sure. I don't have any exact examples of what could go wrong with a, a newer E-Class wagon. Uh, good choice on car, by the way. I love wagons. Big, big long roof fan myself. So um, the, the real answer is you want something that's covered with a factory warranty. That's, that's a good option. Then you know that it's at least not going to uh, eat you out of house and home. Hopefully that answers your question. Um, we have uh, a few questions here from one enthusiastic listener uh, from the Jalopnik comments section. Dan's Dance Revolution says, How about a bunch of questions? His first question, Would you buy a Chinese car? Not just one that's made in China, for example, Buick and Tesla models, but one that emerged from a wholly Chinese design-to-manufacture process. In fact, I think I would. Um, there are a few that are... Basically, for the last 10 to 15 years, there's been a bunch of companies that have said they're going to bring Chinese cars to the United States. Um... Build Your Dreams, Great Wall, among others. There's probably, every time I've gone to, uh, say, the Chicago Auto Show or the Detroit Auto Show or the Los Angeles Auto Show, there always seems to be a booth kind of in the back corner that's got one strange proportions, usually small, um, Chinese-built vehicle. And they say, you know, we're bringing this car to the U.S. And thus far... Really, none of them have uh, made that happen. There is one Chinese-built company that's building uh, electric vehicles called Candy, K-A-N-D-I, and they are quite inexpensive. Um, with the current federal tax incentives, basically you end up paying less than $10,000 for their lowest uh, entry-level model. 
Um, and it is capable of highway speeds. Not much more than that, but it is capable of highway speeds. Uh, I've, I've really thought about looking at one of those. Um, I think a, a sub $10,000 electric kind of city transport would be a really good option, especially for the town of Reno, where really nothing's more than 20 to 30 miles away. Um, I, I haven't been in it. Um, I have driven some of these, uh, Chinese made Buicks, for example, and, and they seem to be uh, of the same quality or equal to their, their American built counterparts, um, or, or European built counterparts for that matter. Um, it's, we'll have to see. Uh, I think that China has made a lot of inroads in manufacturing in recent years. They've really learned uh, quality control and and engineering and development, much in the same way that the Koreans did in the 1990s and the Japanese did in the 1970s. Um, If you look at automobiles, uh, when first, first wave Japanese cars came on the market, uh, in the 60s and 70s here in the U.S. Many of them were regarded as um, not built particularly well. Uh, early Hondas and Toyotas and that, that type of stuff. Uh, Datsuns. Um, they, they kind of carried that uh, reputation at least through the early 1970s when uh, their fuel economy was so much better that American consumers actually started buying them en masse just to try to afford to get to work with the uh, fuel crisis of 1973. So, yeah. Then, you know, again, as I said, the the Korean companies, uh, Kia and Hyundai, when they first launched their cars here in the late 1980s, um, they were kind of seen as the same thing. They were a very cheap, um, not particularly well-built, unreliable kind of car. And... They, Korea actually went about it a different way. Instead of targeting fuel economy, though they did have good fuel economy, they targeted um, entry level pricing and warranties. For for years, Hyundai's and Kias had hundred thousand mile warranties, and nobody else had that. And whether or not the car was capable of making it a hundred thousand miles without um, breaking down or or effectively costing the company a lot of money, they use that as a marketing tactic to get people into the cars and develop their brands in, in this market. So, um, yeah, there there is a potential for Chinese-built cars to catch on in the next decade. It could be the 2020s are the year of the Chinese car. Uh, there's really no way to tell until, you know, 10 years from now, but I think it's possible. Um, I, I know some people that live in China that drive Chinese built cars. Um, and they, the, the quality ones that people actually pay car amounts of money for are pretty well built. Um, even the really cheap ones are fairly well built for the cost, um, if, if you're following along on Jalopnik, uh, Jason Torchinsky has an excellent series of um, blogs about a, a vehicle called the Chang Li that is like a three-horsepower 
basically a grocery cart with a, a little electric motor in it. It's a fascinating series of, of uh, videos and, and blogs. So go check that out when you get a moment. But um, as far as buying, would I buy a Chinese car? I would say at, at the right price point, I would. I would be interested to test drive one and, and see how they go. But uh, I don't think that I would discriminate against any kind of Chinese built car if it's up to the same standards. So, yeah, no problem. Uh, why, next question. Why isn't active noise cancellation for road and engine noise a mainstream feature in cars? The software and hardware burden of adding this seems small relative to the mountain of NVH development, testing, and physical material in modern vehicles. I I don't know for certain, but I would wager that it has something to do with um, the necessity of hearing your surroundings. Uh, cars can only get so quiet before uh, there are issues with, say, hearing a, an ambulance siren and getting out of the way, or hearing a horn honk, or hearing... Um, the car next to you, just tire noise. Um, also, you know, noise cancellation is only going to take care of that one element of NVH. That's noise, vibration, and harshness. The The added benefit of um, sound deadening and improved, say, engine mounts or something like that to, to reduce the vibration is also going to have the knock-on effect of reducing the noise inside the cabin. So while um, many cars you'll still, even electric cars that don't have, you know, the the big vibrations from a, a motor or an engine, uh, you'll still hear things like wind noise of the wind going over the car or tire noise as the tires roll on the pavement. Um, but the part of part of that sound is the vibration itself. So by getting, by getting rid of just noise, you would probably notice vibration and harshness much more, um, squeaks and rattles and, and the vibration of the tire on the pavement, that kind of thing. Um, so I think it's kind of a, it's kind of a, a black art in a way because, you're developing how the car feels and part of how it feels is how it sounds. So yeah, I would say there's probably some regulations in there that are above my pay grade. Um, but it also has something to do with, uh, not disconnecting the car from the reality of the road. <laughs> if you can't hear anything, then you may not know what's going on around you. So, uh, next question, brochures from the 1970s and eighties seemingly tout features that feel either mundane or esoteric today. Things like piston geometry or what type of rear suspension is employed. These same things still matter to performance, but rarely are discussed. Why have we as a car buying public changed? Uh, I, I do believe that, yes, we have changed as a car buying public. I think that um, more than that, 
the way cars are marketed has changed. Um, for example, the majority of people buying a car don't particularly care how it drives. That's perhaps always been the case, but it's definitely the case now, or at least the way the cars are marketed. For the most part, people are vastly more interested in the tech of the car, say the um, infotainment system or the uh, radar cruise control or lane keeping assist features or, you know, voice to text or um, voice control of things in the cabin. And in that way, cars today are marketed kind of like tech devices, like cell phones or computers or something like that. Generally, if you're buying an iPhone, you don't care what kind of processor is in it. You don't care how much data it can hold. You just care that it's an iPhone. You go to the store, you pay for the phone, and you take it home and whatever. So I don't think that anyone really cares what shape the pistons are or what kind of rear suspension is in the back. For the most part, all cars, all new cars are good enough that the average driver probably can't differentiate between a decent car and a better car. So if you don't care what the suspension is like because it just it rides like a car <laughs> in that way, then the way that they differentiate is through tech devices. So yes, I would say um, perhaps in the 70s and 80s, a bad car was very different from a good car. And and I say that in, in the way that like a Pinto was different from a Mustang or, you know, you kind of understand what I mean. So something to differentiate to make your car better, to make it seem better engineered to the customer, whether they understand what the piston geometry or type of rear suspension was, it was focusing on this engineering because a lot of these cars, especially the, the cheaper ones, were very slapdash at the time. They were very poorly put together. They were, you know, not particularly good cars. Um, they weren't particularly reliable. So to tell, and obviously I, I wasn't a car buyer in the 70s and 80s, so I, I don't know this to be a fact, but I would guess that the majority of people who were buying cars in the 70s and 80s wanted something to show to them that their car was worth the money uh, in in the engineering aspect. So hopefully that answers that question. <laughs> um, okay, next question. Crossover coupes, for example, the BMW X4, feature a silhouette and a design aesthetic that is considered, at best, divisive. However, we're starting to see car makers' first genuine attempts at electric cars in the United States, for example, the Ford Mustang Mach-E, the Volkswagen ID4, etc., arrive as crossover coupes. This is done for aerodynamic reasons and features cladding and trim to disguise the vehicle's shape. But they're definitely crossover coupes. Do you think the German luxury brand's crossover coupe push has normalized that form factor, or even made it desirable, 
in a way that will tangibly improve adoption of mainstream EVs with that somewhat ridiculous form factor. Okay. Um, so effectively you're saying uh, um, crossover coupes like the X4, the uh, Audi Q5 Sportback, um, the Mercedes GLE, I think, is their crossover coupe. Um, those are the, the high-end luxury crossover coupes. So those have been on the market for, say, five years now. And they're selling, but perhaps not uh, super desirable. For example, the X4 sells about a quarter as many as the X5, which is the more upright version of that. It doesn't have the sloping rear glass, stuff like that. So I think that they're selling in numbers enough that, you know, BMW and Audi and, and Mercedes-Benz feel like they need to sell them, but they're not outselling their traditional form factor SUV style. So... um as to whether or not that influences people buying EVs, I think the the EVs are kind of shaped that way. They have that that tapered rear, like a Model Y or the Mach E or the ID. Four with a flat back. They call that cam tail. With uh, the way that the air exits the rear of the car, it's less aerodynamic drag to have that sloping rear go to a flat tail. That's that's an aerodynamic principle that's been proven back to the 60s. So you're finding a way to detach the air from the car, the laminar flow of the air as it leaves the car. Um, I think that's probably why these electric vehicles are doing this, because it's more aerodynamic to have that sloping rear glass. Uh, I think they're doing an SUV form factor because that's what will sell, but then they're making it sort of coupified by sloping that rear back in order to get the um, drag coefficient that they're looking for to get the range. You know, the, the more drag your car has, the harder that electric motor has to push through the air, so that costs more range. So the slipperier it is through the air... You'll, get, you'll go farther on a charge. So I think there's maybe a little bit of it being normalized. P- perhaps desirable. I don't, I don't particularly desire them, but I'm, I'm not the normal uh, car consumer, I suppose. Um, will it tangibly improve adoption of mainstream EVs? Perhaps. I definitely think that the SUV form factor, like the Mach-E or the ID4, will influence some people to step out of their traditional gas SUV into an electric SUV. If you look at something like the Mach-E, it's not particularly high off the ground. Same, same goes with the Tesla Model Y. It's not particularly high off the ground. You sit very high. It's very upright seating in both of those vehicles. But your your ground clearance is about as much as a traditional sedan. Um, for example, uh, 
Engineering Explained, there's a YouTube channel, Engineering Explained, recently did a comparison between the uh, Model Y and the Mach-E and mentioned that uh, his Subaru WRX previous car that he had 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 more ground clearance than the Mach-E did. I don't know the exact numbers off the top of my head, but... Whether that answers your question, I'm not really sure. Um, I definitely think people will be stepping out of things like Escapes and going into things like Mach-E's or stepping out of things like Tiguan's, Volkswagen Tiguan's, and going into ID4's as they become more readily available. Uh, So the SUV side of it, I do believe, will tangibly improve adoption of mainstream EVs. I think the the sloping rear window, as you've mentioned, the coupe crossover coupe look, uh, I think that's more to do with aerodynamics than it is to do with the desirability of a crossover coupe. Um, and then he says, tell us about the Reno automotive scene. Okay, that's not a question, it's a demand, but uh, I digress. <sighs> there is one. For sure. There's definitely car enthusiasm here in Reno. Um, it, you know, there, there's everything runs, runs the gamut from um, like kind of beater drift cars. There's some sports cars. There's a lot of uh, high-end cars. I saw Rolls-Royce this morning because, you know, people run casinos and live here. So there's, there's definitely money in town. Um, I've seen a lot of muscle cars. I've seen a lot of um, exotics, Lamborghinis around every now and again, usually in the summer, not so much this time of year. Um, there is for sure some uh, some trucks, off-road trucks, uh, Jeeps, that kind of stuff. I don't really get into that on four wheels. I'm more of an off-road motorcycler than a off-road truck guy. Um, but there's a lot of enthusiasm for trucks and the, and the truck scene here in Reno. Um, obviously we have quite a few, uh, uh, shops that are specific to that, that particular part of the demographic. Um, air-cooled Volkswagens. There's quite a few of those around as well. Um, if you go to the other side of I-80 into Auburn, there's Volkswagen shops there. There's a bunch here in Reno as well. And the, the old saying goes that uh, Volkswagens, especially in the 70s and 80s, they would make it to the top of the mountain and then they'd have to, they would break down up there because it's uh, high altitude, has less air, so they don't cool as well because you're not running as much uh, oxygen or air molecules past the cylinders when it's when it's up that high so then they would coast to the bottom of the mountain and they would be stuck here broken so um yeah i i think there's probably some truth to that uh i i wasn't around for the volkswagen days of the 80s and 70s 80s and 90s but there's definitely a lot of volkswagen shops in town and you see them kicking around still uh some baja bugs and and that kind of stuff so Really, all kinds here in Reno. There's this is a melting pot of car enthusiasm here. <laughs> uh, it's it's hard to get anybody to to go to a car show or to hang out, but it's definitely there. So anyway, that's all for this week. 
So now is my opportunity to plug something fun. Speaking of car shows, I'm not busy enough in 2021. I've decided to launch a new automotive event this year. It's called Autopia 2099, and it's for any car, truck, SUV, motorcycle, or mobility device powered by electricity. Retrofuturism is the name of the game with this show. We're throwing it back to bring it forward. Buck Rogers, Atomic Age, World's Fair, Eames Chair, Mid-Mod, Ray Gun type stuff. Dress it up, dress it down, bring a good attitude. The show is going to happen in Los Angeles this December. So if you're interested in more information, contact me. (laughs) Check out Autopia2099 on Twitter or Instagram. Give us a follow. You'll enjoy it. 10 and 2 is hosted by me, Bradley Brownell. As always, you can find my work every day at jalopnik.com, which is definitively the greatest car site in the world. I also run the show at flatsixes.com, a blog about Porsche, and I have a weekly electric car column at evpulse.com. Email your questions to ask10and2 at gmail.com, all spelled out, A-S-K-T-E-N-A-N-D-T-W-O, or call in with your questions to 775-266-8376. That's 775-266-8376. This episode was produced by Bradley Brownell. Editing by Thomas from K-Wink. Promotional consideration from listeners like you has made this show possible. Please visit kwnkradio.org to support Reno Community Radio. Go to jalopnik.com to read, enjoy, and comment on all of my articles. Shout out to the Tappet Brothers. Thanks for listening. I'll see you around the bend.